Hello, I'm Melanie Tate and you're tuned in to Now Hear This. Just before the end of 2013, Now Hear This had the great pleasure of kicking off the Our Dreaming exhibition at the State Library of Queensland. As it was our first Now Hear This in Brisbane, we wanted to do something really special and decided to invite a number of Brisbane storytellers to tell a story based around a family photo that means something to them. Coming up, a devastatingly beautiful story about theatre director Wesley Enoch's relationship with his father. But the first story today is from Priscilla Sutton. Priscilla is an amputee and her work as a curator has brought amputees from Australia, the UK, America and Japan together for an art exhibition called Spare Parts. You'd think that an exhibition about prostheses was about as personal as you can get. Well, in this Now Hear This story, Priscilla takes it to another level. So I would like to start by audio describing the photo that we're all looking at on the screen. Um, The photo was taken about 30 years ago, uh, so it has that beautiful 80s tinge that Instagram users these days search through filters to try and recreate. There are three people in the photo. The first one that I'll talk about is my dad. Um, He is laying down on the couch. He's in his pyjamas, which is the old school um, button-up cotton shirt and shorts. Um, He has a bunch of toys sitting on him. Um, The couch that he's on, um, again, a lovely old vintage couch that people probably pay a lot of money for these days, but we we thought it was a bit scabby when we were kids. Sorry, Mum. Um, But it's got the um, the, the beige vinyl... um, Uh, armrests and the the back and the bottom cushion with that brown and orange woven fabric. Um, My brother Mick, who's probably about eight years old in this photo, I would guess, um, he's sitting at the the end of the couch, sort of leaning on that armrest um, and leaning over our dad, and he's holding a toy baby's bottle at our dad's mouth (laughs) um, with his thumb up going, got it. And I'm sitting at the, the same end of the couch and I'm on the floor. I have two legs in this photo, which is always nice when that happens. Um, and the jig's up, I'm a blonde. Um, and I have almost the same haircut. It's a bit sad. Um, <laughs> with my, my straight blunt fringe. So yeah, the jig's up and I'm, I'm a real blonde, so that's why sometimes I... Um, I say silly things, and um, and I'm actually holding my sorry blondes, um, and that's uh, I'm actually holding a toy dog. His name was Fluffy, and he was my favourite toy in the entire world as a child. So the photo um, is the, uh, the three of us. I'm actually the youngest of. Um, four kids, and I'm the only girl, and I had a disability, so it was a very interesting family. Um, When I was asked to speak here tonight about a family photo, uh, I started to talk to my family, and we started to dig through our boxes of old photos and looking on the computer and, and trying to find a photo to inspire a story to share with you. And there was a bit of a common factor with a lot of photos that we came across, whereby they would be taken at night, my dad was asleep, and my brother Mick and I were doing something to him. Um... (laughs) where there was makeup involved or bottles or toys or costumes, which is all quite funny. And um, the other very special thing about this photo is that um, my mum took it, who is the most amazing woman, um, but she's really crap at taking photos. But this is actually all right. There's no fingers in the way or anything. So um, good on your mum. 
So, uh, so that's, you know, um, why I chose this photo, because it was actually a pretty common theme in our family photos, was us doing something to our dad. Now, my dad's actually not in my life. He is dead. He died over a decade ago. But more so than actually not being on this planet anymore, he's not in my life in an emotional way. Um, we weren't great friends. We didn't get along very well. I was never daddy's little girl. And a lot of that comes from the fact that my dad was actually an alcoholic. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the dad who has one too many glasses of wine at dinner and then tells bad dad jokes or um, gets drunk at the Christmas party and does something silly. I'm talking about a drunk. He, I don't remember a day of my childhood where he wasn't drunk, where he didn't wake up and get a stubby from the fridge. So the other reason why I really wanted to choose this photo was because it's not that innocent. My dad had actually once again come home from the pub drunk, passed out on the couch, and that's actually what my brother calls a child's revenge, that we used to dress him up when he was pissed, and it was fantastic. And I'm so happy in this, and I think that's hilarious and a little bit sinister, because I didn't really like him, so I got a lot out of this experience, obviously. <laughs> So looking at all these photos and talking to my family and talking to friends, um, it's not uncommon to have um, friends and family members who are alcoholics. Um, it's a bit of an epidemic. And we all, you know, know that it's serious and we know that it's sad, but there's also lots of really funny stories. One of the funniest stories that I think that my family have about my dad being an alcoholic um, was the story I really want to tell you tonight, but we didn't have a photo of it, and you might be glad. Um, but it was inspired by finding this, this little gem over here. So my brother Mick and I, we were the youngest of the four. Um, there was a bit of an age gap, so Mick and I ended up being at home quite often together while our brothers were, you know, off playing with their mates and having fun riding BMXs. So a lot of the mischief that I got up to, Mick was always involved or instigated it. One of the things that we had in common as brother and sister that we really loved was the Smurfs. Hands up here, who loves Smurfs? They're fantastic, right? I used to dream that I would be like little Lisa the Smurf. That was her name, wasn't it? Yeah, Smurfette. Wasn't it Lisa? Was there a Lisa? I don't know. I'm making stuff up now. But when I was a kid, I knew all the Smurf information, okay? Anyway, so um, I'll have to Google that because that's interesting. I wonder where I got Lisa from. Anyway, I should research this before I talk about it. So anyway, um, one of the things that we used to love to do was play with Smurfs. Um, at the service station, you used to be able to buy them for 20 cents, and we'd always be begging Mum to buy us a new Smurf. We had a bit of a Smurf city set up at home. We'd always be playing with them. And, um, and one of the things we really loved to do was make potions, because that's what the Smurfs were about, Papa Smurf making his potion. It was always lots of fun. We lived in this big Queenslander, and, um, and we were downstairs and um, making a potion one day. And we had a bit of a bucket and a stick to mix everything in. We had some pet guinea pigs and, um, you know, put some guinea pig shit in the mix, which was great. We had some, we had a dog, so we got some dog shit, put that in the mix. Some dirt, some mud, some grass. If you think of anything gross and disgusting that two kids can find in a yard, it went in this potion we made this day. So here we are under this Queenslander, two little kids, probably five and eight, making this potion, having this fantastic time, high-fiving each other, saying this is the best, we've got to make it even better. And then my brother says, I know what I can do, I'm going to pee in it. <laughs> so then my big brother Mick 
peas in the bucket and we're mixing it and we just think we are the bee's knees. So when we finished making our potion, we put it in a jar. There was always big old jars. I think they used to be um, from coffee because that's, I think, what my mum was made up of. It was just coffee that kept her going. So we put it in the jar. Now, this part of the story I actually don't remember um, and it's in preparing for tonight and sharing this with my brother, Mick, that he told me that we actually put the jar in a cupboard because that's what you do. We put it away so it could ferment and bubble and become even more awesome. So I actually forgot that it went in a cupboard. Now, I grew up in Mackay and humidity in Mackay. Apparently, we didn't see it again for six months. So the ultimate potion full of every species type of poo and pee, um, was fermenting away in this jar. But the bit I do remember is um, when we came across this jar again, we thought, oh my God, this is ultimate potion, we've got to show mum. Because <laughs> our mum was awesome. And so what do two kids do who do something really amazing? You've got to show your mum. So we dragged it upstairs, so in this big Queenslander, the kitchen's probably the size of my apartment lounge room now, um, really long benches, and the reason you take them to the kitchen, because where's mum going to come home when she, um, where's she going to go when she comes home from work? Kitchen, she's got to cook us dinner. So we take it in the kitchen, it's a really big kitchen, there's all these long benches, and we put it, you know, not near the sink, because that's gross, it's a potion, and we put it in the far corner, and we went off and kept playing and doing whatever. So we've made this ultimate potion, it's our biggest triumph, it's been fermenting for six months. Um, going to show mum, it's super exciting. What happens in the meantime? Dad comes home from the pub pissed again. And I don't know about you guys, but I have definitely come home from the pub pissed and needed a snack. So dad walked into the kitchen and went, hey, new chutney, and grabbed a piece of bread. And I'm sure that you can actually work out what's happened here. So good old Tommy, who's passed out in the photo here, ate our ultimate potion and he got sick we got in trouble blah 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 (laughs) fantastic story it's one of our favorites to share about Tommy and even though he was a drunk and there were lots of serious moments where that was not a good thing for our family we can still all have a laugh but the moral of this story is very important because I want to say to you guys don't be that guy don't be that dad don't be that drunk don't be that friend There's no joy in it, because what's going to happen is 30 years later, your kid's going to be invited to speak at the State Library, and she's going to tell everyone that you ate shit. Priscilla Sutton with that story, told at our first Now Hear This in Brisbane at the State Library of Queensland. Keep a lookout on our website for the next Now Hear This at the State Library of Queensland. It's not too far away. We had a terrific slam there a few weeks ago and I look forward to sharing stories from that night with you soon. If you're an Australian theatre lover, you'll know Wesley Enoch's work very well. He's recently had a triumph at the Sydney Festival with Black Diggers, a play that will soon tour around Australia about Aboriginal soldiers in World War One. He's also the artistic director of the Queensland Theatre Company. Here, Wesley tells a story about a family photo that's very important to him and his personal history. 
When I was five, I thought all fathers were black. I was old enough uh, when my mother gave birth to my youngest brother, Andrew, to know that women went through a physical change when they gave birth. And I thought, oh, all these white men just weren't fathers yet. (laughs) We wanted to call my brother Jesus because there's a strong religious theme in my family. I mean, you don't get a name like Wesley James Enoch by accident. Wesley after the Methodist ministers, though Wesley Hall was a cricketer that was touring at the same time, so my father agreed to that. Uh, James after the apostle, and Enoch is from Genesis uh, 16, and was given to our family by missionaries on Stradbroke Island. My brother was born, and he was the last of four children in five years. My parents were 18 and 19 when they got married, and by the time they were 24, they had four children. This is my father at 25. Oh, sorry, he's 26, my mother's 25. And it's on a couch in my grandmother's house in Anala. Being a mixed-race couple in the late 1960s was kind of a bit risque, I'm told. I just thought it was normal. I look at my father and I see our heritage in him. Yes, we come from Stradbroke Island, but I can see my great, great... Uh, Filipino grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, Fernando Gonzalez, who was a Filipino fisherman who got shipwrecked on Shrubrook Island. And I can see in his legs and in his thighs and knees uh, my other great-great-grandfather who came from Rotoma Island in the South Pacific, who ran away from the blackbirders in the north of Queensland and came and got shipwrecked on Shrubrook Island. There's a theme there somehow. (laughs) And also the different Aboriginal clans that are in my father. In my mother, I see, and I am so grateful for her hair, um, my great-grandfather who was Spanish. um, I wish I had got my great-grandmother's Danish length, but we didn't. And also the Irish-English kind of European mongrel. You know how it all worked then. And this picture I keep coming back to. I'm five... I'm seeing the world in a very particular way. And I look at this picture and I think, what is my father doing to me? I was a very angry young kid. Like most Aboriginal families, I think um, we're not untouched by domestic violence, by alcoholism, by all the scars that colonialism had brought, I think. And I look at this picture and I see me looking at, and I go... What are those eyes about? This kind of anger in me at this point in time. A five-year-old who's just angry at the world and whose father is holding him back. I went on to become incredibly violent as a 13-year-old for the third time when I suspended from school for picking up a school desk and hurling it at a teacher. And in fact, the, the stories go that that teacher only has his finger now because he had a wedding ring on. And when I bit it, the wedding ring stopped its, my teeth from biting his finger off. As a 13-year-old, I was incredibly violent. And I would look at this picture and I would say, my father is holding me back. I went through a whole lot of analysis and a kind of a whole lot of purging and thinking about it. And I got to the stage where I went, I don't, I don't need 
things for my father anymore. I don't need him to um, give me his praise. I'm not a sporty guy. I don't know what I'm doing in the sporting field. I'm going to give up sport. I'm going to give up all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to ask for my father's forgiveness or permission or anything. He's not going to hold me back anymore. And so I kind of turned away from my father. My siblings have their own lives. Both my parents didn't really finish high school. Well, in fact, Dad didn't even go to high school. He, he's the eldest of 12. He gave up school at 10 to uh, earn money for the family on Strawbrook Island in the sand mines there. And my mother went to year nine. Um, and when my father's father died, my dad was 17 and he felt free. And the next year he got married. They were forced to get married because they were pregnant with my sister. And both sides of the family would not allow the marriage to happen. My uh, maternal grandmother was, if you believe my mother, um, a very loose woman, a nightclub singer, lived in Anala, and I have these fantastic memories of her sitting on her bed in her nightgown uh, on a Saturday morning watching the, the, the races with the, with the phone and chocolates ringing the TAB, placing bets. <laughs> my grandmother's the one who has taken this photo. My father's side of the family, I have this fantastic story that my great-grandmother on my father's side was named Piety, and she gave her children to the church so she could go and be a missionary around Queensland to different Aboriginal missions. And so there was this real divide, but the church brought them together, my mother and my father. So an act of forgiveness was needed. I kind of went through my teenage years going, I don't need to forgive, I don't need to understand. And as I kind of grew up, I also realised I was gay. How do I say that to the father I don't really like? How do I tell it to the mother who's incredibly religious? And I then started to look at this photo and think, my father's pushing me away. He's not holding me back. There's a sense of distance and a sense of me with a, my eyes on a prize. I want to be there. I want to go somewhere different to where my family have gone to. My sister and I went to university. My sister now works for the, um, the Queensland Council of Unions. And she was at, uh, in Indigenous policy and Red Cross and went to university and did all that kind of stuff. I'm working in the theatre. My, my brother, Rodney, is now a police officer, having gone through a whole range of things. And my youngest brother, Andrew, is... Um, oh, he's our youngest. <laughs> As I grew, I also got to see my father through my siblings' eyes. And I saw my father grow up. I got to his age at, you know, 25 and thought, how would I cope if I had four kids under five? What would I have done? And then when I got to 30 and my body started to become his body, and now at 45, my body is my father's body. And there's a kind of act of forgiveness that everyone needs to do as you grow older and kind of own your own history and forgive people for it. And I look at this photo now and I think, what's really saying to me? In May this year, my father was diagnosed with um, pretty severe lung cancer. He, turned, he was just about to turn 65, 
and he had decided he would retire. Three weeks before retirement, he got his diagnosis. He's on his second lot of chemo, and my youngest brother has been the most amazing man. As he stepped up, and he's being my father's primary carer, and the sense of going, what is my brother seeing in my father that I didn't? And this act of love that my brother is doing for my father is amazing. And it made me look at this photo differently, and say, my father is reaching out to me here. A man of 25, 26, reaching out and saying, "How do I show this boy that he doesn't have to be like this?" He's reaching out and saying, "It's all right. It's fine. Everyone else can smile, and I'm really sour." And he's turning to me and saying, "It's all right." Who knows what the future will hold? Who knows what's going to happen? Miracles of science, all those kind of things. But it's wonderful now to watch my father be a grandfather. I have a niece and three nephews, and they work like this, but 30 years later. And to watch my father forgive and love and care and hold and kiss, and to get a sense of what this man. Has gone through is the most amazing gift for me as a storyteller. I go, how can I ever cut off stories of my world? How can I ever stop thinking about what is behind the face? And I look at this photo and go, this little boy has aged and taken on the world and thought about different things. And if it wasn't for this man, this black man. In the 1960s, who at the time was not even a citizen when he was a, you know, 17, has gone on to raise a family of loving, caring people. We're not in prison. We're not suiciding. We're not drunks or addicted. And I think my parents have done the most amazing thing. And I will look at this photo until I die, and bless me. I will thank the Lord for what they've been able to give me. Thank you very much. Wesley Enoch, artistic director of the Queensland Theatre Company, with that story. You're on now. Hear this. Next week, two more stories from our family photo night at the State Library of Queensland. You'll hear a heartbreaking family saga that stretches from Australia to Scandinavia, from author Christina Olsen, and how those first walks to school were for the writer of Ugly, Robert Hogue. When my parents decided to throw in their lots together and to marry, they sat down and told each other their secrets. So it was a planned conversation. They would each tell each other their story. They'd be allowed to ask each other any questions they wanted to, any of those doubts or suspicions lurking in their heart. And then, you know, after it had all been turned out into the air, they'd all they'd both asked anything they wanted to ask. They would zip it up. It would all be closed. They would go forward and not back. The past was the past. 
that was the promise they made each other. And this man was one of the secrets. I'd been born with a massive tumour in the middle of my face. Uh, it, it mangled my face. It created bumps and scars. It pushed my eyes to the side of my head like a fish. Uh, both, my, both my legs were deformed, and if I wanted to walk, they needed to be amputated. And amputated they were. The stories you heard today were recorded live at the State Library of Queensland by Jim Usher with sound engineering by Lila Shunal. I'm Melanie Tate. I hope you have a terrific week and get a story or two out of it. 